much. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you, Robert. You guys are really blessed to have the quality pastor that you have. I hope you realize that. So I just really honor that. So Betsy says, don't talk so long. But, you know, when you got a preacher that's, you know, used to preaching two or three times a week and then you, you retire him. But um, I'm still technically um, ordained under Randy Clark's ministry, Global Awakening, so I honor him as uh, apostolic father. And when I retired, they said, well, do you want to still continue to be ordained with us? I said, well, yes, what do I need to do? He said, well, now that you're not a senior pastor, you have to be something else. And I said, well, I didn't know I had to change. So technically, um, I am now an itinerant, and my ministry now is called Revealing the Father, which has really been my ministry since I've met him about 21 years ago. So I've been serving in ministry for about 41 years. And the first 20, I was religious. And the other 20, I've been ministering the Father's love, which you actually received this morning. Joe, right? Yeah, and you also had a fresh revelation this morning as you were laying there. As you were receiving that love, God, the Holy Spirit was speaking to you, and he gave, gave you a fresh revelation that uh, you really needed to hear personally. So thank you, Holy Spirit, for that. So I'd like to just share one verse. This is not my text, but just to let you know why I do what I do and, and really a little bit into who I am. I'm just going to read it to you. It's uh, actually my ministry verse for my itinerant flag that I'm waving, but it's really about what I believe. So it's uh, verse 19 and 20, uh, 1 John 5, and John, uh, John says, we know that we are of God. Can I, can I get an amen? amen? We know that we're of God. And the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. We recognize that too, to some sense. Here's the verse, and we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding in order that we might know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ, this is the true God and eternal life. So John is actually speaking of the Father. So he says the reason that Jesus has come is to reveal the true God, who he really is, and this is really eternal life. And so that's really been my ministry and the fire that burns in my heart. It's important for me to, for people to know who the Father really is. And in uh, my sanctified opinion He's not being represented fully of who he is in much of the church. And so uh, what I've been doing for actually the last 20 years, I met him on the floor in Toronto. Uh, for about 45 minutes, I was laying on the floor, and this liquid love just flowed over me. I don't know if you ever heard people talk about the baptism of the Father's love, but I was literally baptized in the Father's love. I had been born again in the 70s and the 80s. I'd been filled with the Spirit speaking in tongues and casting out demons and healing the sick, been, I, you know, all that. But I'd never really known the Father until I really knew, until I met the Father, I, I actually realized that I really didn't understand the Son. And so what I've learned is in order to be uh, a spiritual father, which is what we're writing the book on, uh, one first has to learn how to be a son. And so what a son does is reveal the Father, but unless you know the Father, you can't really reveal him, and you can't really truly be a son. So I thought I'd bring the real Bible, just to be legit, but uh, I have a PowerPoint which I have probably more um, than you want to, or you're able to eat today, so you're just going to have to eat what you can. Uh, this is a picture of, uh, I think Michelangelo painted this on the Sistine Chapel, of a picture of God. And my message today is, what the wrath? So I want to talk about the wrath of God today. And uh, so I want to start out with a traditional view of it's, it's really hard to talk about what I'm trying to get across in the character of the Father and what really wrath is, in my opinion, from a biblical Hebrewic relationship with the Father, is that we've been so steeped in our culture that we have um, come to the place where, as traditional evangelicals, which most of us would probably fit into the box, either you were a Baptist or if you're you know, Pentecostal or you're charismatic, that's all been framed under the idea that Jesus was punished to appease God's anger. And I could just preach a whole message on why that's not true, but I won't because I want to get on with my message. But here, here's a perfect example. Sinners in the hands of an angry God. 
This is um, Jonathan Edwards and part of his message. Go online and read the whole, uh, the whole message. It's quite incredible. You know, we're just like God's dangling us over like little spiders over the fire. He, and he's, he's like actually holding back like, oh, I'm just, I, I, I want to drop him into the fire. But because, ah, man, I want to save him, I'm not, you know. Well, here's the passage. The, the bow of God's wrath has been and the arrow made ready for the string. And just bends the arrow at your heart and strains the bow. And it's nothing but the mere pleasure of God and that of an angry God without any promise or obligation at all that keeps the arrow one moment from being made drunk with your blood. So, and that's, you know, that's one of the most famous evangelical, you know, preaching sermons in American history. But what's happening is, is that that's really the wrong perspective of what I believe biblical wrath is. So, so my goal today is to give you a different perspective, especially those of you who have been raised in evangelical backgrounds, Pentecostal, charismatic. I want to say, if you could just kind of wipe that away from your thinking and open your mind up to another perspective and follow me today. Because I'm not saying I've got this figured out, but I do know that that's not the father that I met. He wasn't angry. You know, when I was preaching, I would always say, God's not mad, he's glad. So, so what the wrath, in order to understand what the scriptures reveal concerning the anger and the wrath of God, it's necessary to consider his character. God is love. The context in which they are spoken and with God whom is at wrath with, he's displeased, saddened, angered, indignant, vexed, grieved, enraged, to be displeased or hate. And that's the technical uh, definition in the Greek. The good news for those of us in the new covenant, which Pastor Robert was talking about, those who are in Christ, God's not mad but glad. However, he is mad at the source of what causes his children to sin, Satan and his demons. So let me say this. If you get one thing, get this. God's wrath is against the consequences of sin, not the sinner. And you've heard that. They, and they, they got that right part, you know. God loves the sinner but hates the sin. And that's really true. But yet at the same mouth, we talk about, well, yeah, but God's an angry God that needs to punish sin. So sinners in the hands of an angry God is not what wrath is about. So here's my premise. So this is what I think is true. The consequences of the wrath of God are not from the vindictive nature of anger, but from the nature of love. His love strives to defend and protect his children by destroying that which would destroy them. His wrath is directed toward the works of the devil and the tyranny of his evil. When people choose to align with the enemy rather than accepting and receiving the covenant of God's kingdom, they position themselves in line of God's consuming fire. His wrath is purposed to destroy the works of the enemy. Those who choose the wrong side reap the same reward. I find many parallels in scripture when there is worship of other gods or principalities and God's wrath. So when I look at the big picture, and I read all the stories in the Old Testament because a lot of people say, well, how can you say that God's love and, you know, we, you know, love and hug each other and God is good. And yet we read in the Old Testament, he's, you know, basically burning everyone and destroying lots of people. Thousands of people are dying. Why is that? How do you put that kind of God in the Old Testament with the God in the New Testament that Jesus represented? Well, let me say this. There's not hardly a place or a story that you can read where it's not connected, where his covenant people made a wrong decision, and chose to worship other gods. And so wherever you see wrath and punishment, there's always a parallel between God's people making wrong choices and worshiping other gods. And of course, uh, I know Pastor Robert has, has probably preached on the unseen realm, uh, Michael Heisner, but that's something that most of the church doesn't really understand, that they're real principalities, there's real devil, and you know, there's real powers, there's sources trying to take the attention of humanity, which is God's first love. And so in the big picture, I'm saying, let me say this, you know, this could be a, a point, is God's wrath is always connected to when people follow another God, <laughs> and spiritually and naturally. So that's kind of my premise there. So if I can make a point, don't mess with my kids. I mean, when I think about the wrath of God, I think about well, actually the love of a mother or of a grandmother. 
You know, God forbid anybody touches my grandson. I mean, Mama Johnson's going to be out there getting a baseball bat. And so I think if we, if we can understand that the wrath of God is part of the nature of his love. So, you know, what does anything look like through love? The love of the Father. And so even when we look at wrath, and I'm going to show you later on in the message, it's really quite delightful. It's actually a wonderful asset, an attribute of God to know that he's angry when somebody messes with me because I'm his child. Hallelujah. And so that should give me hope and strength. So let me show you some scriptures. God is good, but he's just. And here's a passage uh, in Exodus. So the Lord descended in a cloud and stood there with him, Moses, and he called upon the name of the Lord. And then the Lord passed in front of him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love, loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives inequity, transgressions and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the inequity of the fathers upon the children and upon the grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. And so here's the heart of, I see the heart of the father here, but yet one of the things we have to understand when we're talking about the wrath of God and actually talking about as a father, well, a father is going to protect his children and he's going to, and the father is still just. Like a lot of people, when they, you know, when they talk about the father's love and especially because I'm a really grace-oriented guy, I talk about the love of God, how good he is, how sweet he is, he's always for us. And some people say, well, you know, don't, don't make God too good of a guy, you know, like he's not a Santa Claus, you know, because we got we to gotta make sure that people have enough fear of God so they won't sin. Well, I just think that's dumb. I just think that's not the way to preach the gospel. But the truth is there are consequences to our actions. There are consequences to our sins. I mean, how we raise our children, look, because you've chosen to you know, build this beautiful church, and by the way, Pastor Robert, the building looks beautiful. It just looked, I drove up like, wow, this is almost prophetic. You guys are coming into a, a new period of, of, of health and resurrection. In fact, uh, Betsy's a seer, and she was telling me, like every time we come, she always sees the back of this open. Like she goes, there's two big angels with big golden uh, fiery things there with red shields, which is the blood of Jesus. And are, are, like, are there fields back here? What, what's behind here? Right, but she just sees that this whole back is opened, like the church is not closed. And I think, I think what that means prophetically for me is that you're inclusive with the love of God, and which is really you're the house of praise for all people. So I think that's who you are as an identity, and God is really going to begin to use that. Because I, I feel kind of home here, Bob. I mean, I, you know, because this is really kind of the feel that I love when I come to church. And, and uh, when I was pastoring, my congregation was very similar to yours, so I feel pretty, pretty confident. So here's the process. When we look at uh, God's wrath in the, in the Old Testament, here's a passage, and it'll go on through the next slide. Second Chronicles 36, uh, 11 through 14. So here's, here's what I wanted you to see in my, I was talking about. You always see a parallel with God's people and the worship of other gods. So Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. He did evil in the sight of the Lord, his God. He did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet who spoke to the Lord. He also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar who had made him swear allegiance by God, but he stiffened his neck. He hardened his heart against turning to the Lord, the God of Israel. Furthermore, all the officials of the priest and the people were unfaithful following the abominations of the nations and they defiled the house of the Lord which he had sanctified in Jerusalem." Second Chronicles 36, 15. The Lord, the God of their father, sent word to them again and again by his messengers because they had compassion on his people, right? He had compassion, look at that, on his people and on his dwelling place, but they continually mocked the messengers of God, despised his words, scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people until there was no remedy. That word remedy, actually, in the Hebrew, it means there is no, no way to bring it back to health. There's actually no cure. So when did the wrath of God manifest upon his covenant people? Right? He sent his prophets. He sent his word. He had compassion upon them. He loved them. I mean, he kept dealing with them again and again and again and again. And, of course, when I read the stories in, in 
in the Old Testament, isn't it amazing how God, he's so good and they keep doing stupid things? I mean, I can't praise God. I'm, thank God we got the Holy Spirit. But, but what I want you to see there is that the wrath of God is not the character of God. The wrath of God is his love. And so there's a place in the love of God, just like how you deal with your own children, your own grandchildren. There comes a place where you have to say, there's the line. And you have to do something, not because you're vindictive that you want to punish, but it's like, you know, if you don't stop what's going on right now in their lives, they're going to eventually fall into a place of destruction. And that was the heart of God because they were worshiping the demons of surrounding nations. And of course, The Unseen Realm by Michael Heisner is the, probably one of the best books I could recommend for you to really understand what that means in context because we don't really have that context in most of our understanding. They lack humility before the Lord. <laughs> you just talked about that this morning. They were stiff-necked. They hardened their heart. They mocked his messengers. They despised his word. So this made Yahweh, the Most High God, pretty angry. So if you're going to understand the wrath of God, you have to understand the context of what that's written in. Or you can't really come to a place of peace where you say, well, you know, what God am I serving? Am I, am I serving the God of Jesus that, that he came to reveal him? Like John said, you know, God is love and, and there's perfect love in God. He cast out fear because, you know, it, It has something to do with punishment. Well, we have to somehow, I think, in, in our church culture, understand that wrath is still part of God's nature. But if we don't understand what's, why he's wrathful, then we'll get to the place like I think John Edward does. We, we view God as this angry God. And rather than running to him when you make wrong decisions, you run from him. Yeah. See, my goal is for you, when you fall and you do make a wrong decision, which I think all of us have, I know I have, Like, I don't want to come to the place where I'm, I'm fearful if God wants to punish me. I want to run to him as a papa, jump in his, his lap and say, Papa, I, I did it again. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, part of why it's so important to, to understand it. God's wrath is always redemptive. Always, 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 always. God's purpose in his wrath was to bring his people into the protection of his covenant promises. The guilty were punished as examples of what it looks like to be aligned with the wrong kingdom, kingdom alignment, right? I mean, if you're in, the, if you're in alignment with the wrong kingdom, guess what kingdom you're going to get? So here we go, Exodus 13, 14. You shall not worship any other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. In the Old Testament, God's wrath were towards those who rejected his covenant and worshiped the gods or the demons of their neighbors. However, those that refused the worship or worshiped other gods, were protected, and they were called the remnant or the saved. So there is a place in kingdom alignment, right? Thank God, you know, in the New Testament, Paul says we've been translated from a realm of darkness to the kingdom of light. That's what Jesus has did. And so from a New Testament perspective, we have a, a greater revelation of God's love, but even as, as we look in the Old Covenant and the Old Testament, I think that they still understood that God was a, a God full of compassion. So uh, now I want to talk a little bit about in the New Testament, get us there, but wrath in the New Testament, there's more than 20 references. And the, the word in the Greek uh, is orge, and it means anger or natural disposition, temper, agitation of the soul, an impulse, a desire, uh, a violent emotion, but especially angers are defined by his wrath. So a lot of people say, And I don't know if I, I'm going to have time to talk about that. A lot of people say, well, after the cross, there was no longer wrath. There, that's a tricky subject, isn't it? I'll talk about it later. There is and there isn't, but I'll explain it. But right now, let's, let's, I want to stay on course. Romans 1.18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Now, if you really look in the New Testament, And um, Jonathan Welton actually helped me with this. He called the 40 years. It was like the 40 years between Saul and David. There was a 40-year period where after Jesus rose from the dead that Israel had like 40 years to make right decisions and to receive Jesus as the Messiah. And so I think much of when we look at passages like this, we're understanding that the wrath of God was, was coming upon Israel because they were refusing the Messiah. And there were men actually suppressing the truth, and that's why the disciples ended up getting stoned and jailed and whipped because they were suppressing, the, the Jews were suppressing the truth of who Jesus was. So that's, that's part of it in context. 
uh, Ephesians 2, 2, uh, you used to live in sin just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil. And again, you see that, you know, when I first read John, like, don't we, we're, we're from God, but we know the whole world still lay, lies in the power of the evil one. In other words, the enemy still has power if we give him the authority. That's our choice. He has no power if we don't give him the authority, but he still has power. So in other words, you know, a lot of times like, well, God is good and everything's going to be great. And he's a good papa and there's no more problems and don't worry about sin. Don't worry about his, re-. well, yes and no. It's like, it depends what side you're on and it depends on what kingdom you're alignment on. And let me tell you this, there's, well, that's another message. I'm going to stop right there. You have to have me back. Because so, Miss Betsy, she said, you're not going to talk too long today. I said, all right, honey. So, but orge is, I think, let's look at the word orge. Orge actually is a Greek word, and um, it actually is the word where we get um, orgy or orgasm. So in other words, what, what the Greeks were trying to say, this is like a, a over, like this is a, a volcano of passion of the love of God that when his purposes are being thwarted by the enemy, and if you align to that, then you're in big trouble. Let me show you a picture. Orge, that's, a, that's the best picture I can show you. And if you look at it, see the baby elephant behind the mama? And then you see the hyenas, I think. And I think this is the perfect, I mean, the, the picture of the wrath of God is that when the enemy gets in the way of his children and his, and his purposes and his covenant promises, he's going to come in and he's going to stomp and he's going to cause a ruckus for those that are coming against his children. So that's probably the best picture I, I found when I tried to explain the passion or the wrath of God or the anger of God against his children, which kind of makes me really feel happy because um, makes me feel safe. So... Let me give you a definition of what I think New Testament wrath is. God's wrath is a consequence of a person's free will choice. And here's an example. So in the Corinthians, they had some problems. First Corinthians 5, uh, you can see this. I can hardly, this is Paul speaking, I can hardly believe the report about the sexual immorality going on among you. Something that even pagans do, don't do. I am told that a man in your church is living in sin with his stepmother. Then you must throw this man out, hand him over to Satan, so that his sinful nature will be destroyed, and he himself will be saved on the day that the Lord returns. Now, that doesn't sound like some, you know, when I talk about Papa God and he's good, and you know, a lot of people get this idea like, well, you know, he sounds like Santa Claus. No, he's not Santa Claus. He's, I, he's a hugger, he's a lover, he's a comforter, but there is a place in his love where he has to make a decision Right, it's like back in in Exodus where it says like there was there was no cure. There comes a place when he has to deal with our lives in a way that would bring us to a place of of repentance. You know. So what I'm saying is the wrath of God's a good thing. It protects you and it also brings you into a place that leads you into a place of destiny and the fullness of reconciliation, redemption for your life. In Romans, and that's another whole passage, but go home and read Romans, the first chapter. Um, and it talks about, you know, that everyone should know that there's a God. Just look at nature. Look at, stand out at night and look at the stars. You know, and he was talking about, you know, the people that had, had not accepted even the very fact that God exists. And Paul goes to talk about, you know, those that were in sin, but he says twice, he says in verse 24 and 26, he says, or once in each passage. Therefore, God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity. And uh, Romans one twenty six. For this reason, God gave them over to the disgrading passage. So, part of me, when I was studying this, it really made me understand. Like this is this is the love of God. Just like what Paul had to do with that that, that uh, man in Corinthians is that God will allow us to suffer the consequences of our sin, but it's not his heart to punish. I mean, that's my point. He, he's, he's not a punisher. He's a father. You know, one of the things that Harold Eberly and I were talking about, that he really helped me, and he said, you know, the problem is of trying to really preach the father is that it depends what kind of father you've had, you know, and the kind of father you are, and the kind of son you are, kind of daughter. And he said, but here's the truth. He says he's such a good father that he deals with each child differently. 
right? And that makes me happy because, see, I, I am like, I'm really unique. There's no one like me, right? I mean, there's no one like you. And, and so what happens is that, you know, as we are living our lives and we, we make wrong choices and we get in trouble, he's going to deal with us in a, in a way that I need to be dealt with, not you. And so we try to kind of make a cookie cutter, I don't know, doctrine out of how God deals with sin. But, you know, if I had, you know, 10 children and one was, you know, had an IQ of 220 and one had one of 60, you know, or one was really good at mathematics and the other one was good at music and like I would, I would deal with each child in such a special way that I would give them from my love what they need. So I would say the one that had maybe the, the, the higher IQ or had a greater revelation of what truth was, I'd probably be actually harder on him than I would be on the child that didn't quite have everything together that he couldn't understand the big picture. You know what I'm saying? So, so I think it really depends upon the love of God. But I do know that as I look at Scripture, I really think that um, this understanding of wrath has to be understood from, from that perspective of it's, he deals with you according to the consequences of your sin and your decisions because love requires free will. Would you agree with that? Yeah. And so we have to make our own decisions. But see, if you know that God is good and he loves you and he's not angry, he's not going out to punish you, he's out for your best good so that when his wrath does come, you'll go, thank you, Lord, give me more. Because it's, right, and that sounds crazy, doesn't it? Because like I say, we've been boxed in this penal substitution there where God's angry and he's ready to drop us in the fire and, and he's got the bow and he's just like, he's just, oh, I just want to, ah, let's get Bob, bam, you know. It's, you know, he's so angry he can just barely hold his wrath back. Well, see that, to me, that, that's ridiculous. That's not the God that Jesus can represent, but yet we still have to understand that there is wrath and we have to, we have, to have a good direction. About that. So here we go. Correction of direction for protection. So First uh, Corinthians eleven twenty two. Yet when we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned along with the world. Hebrews twelve five. Here's one that a lot of people use about sinners in the hands of an angry God. Hebrews twelve five. And we have forgotten this, the. Ex- and have you forgotten the exhortation, comfort, which is addressed to you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you're reproved by him. And so the word discipline there is uh, padeia, which actually uh, is in reference to child training. If you look in that in the, in the Strong's and Chords, it means to train a child. So that's what discipline was to the writers in the New Testament. And when you're reproved or convicted. And Hebrews 12, 6 says, For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines or trains as a child. Now, this is really good. Get this point. God's a good father. Hebrews 12, 6, the end of it, says, And he scourges every son who he receives. Now, from our most of our evangelical training, we look at the word scourge as being beaten pretty badly. In fact, my generation, right, I'm, I'm going on 68, right? My dad was raised during the Depression, and you know how you dealt with sons' rebellion and, and making wrong choices? You took them out to the woodshed, right? I can remember my mom taking a switch off the tree and, you know, until you finally got your, your attitude right. And I mean, I've, my dad whipped me so bad that I've actually bled. Now, my dad was a good dad. He loved me. I love my dad, but that's what he, that's what he thought discipline was, right? And so we've kind of converted that with, I, I believe, wrong theology from what we've been actually trained in as, as evangelical charismatic Pentecostals from the aspect of why Jesus came was he really punished for, you know, he had to be beat up because we, should, we deserved it. I might talk a little bit why I think that's wrong. I'll have to ask Miss Betsy because she says don't talk too long. But I think this, this, what I'm going to share with you right now, probably, I'd like you to really get this. I think this is probably one of the most important parts of this message. But the best commentary on Scripture is Scripture. Have you heard that? Yeah. So that's good. So Hebrews, Hebrews 12.6 is actually from Proverbs 3.11. Look it up. It says, My son, do not reject the discipline of the Lord or loathe his reproof. For whom the Lord loves, he reproves, even as the Father corrects the Son in whom he delights. Now, can you see the context from that, from the Hebrew mindset? 
right? They didn't have the penal substitutionary theory of atonement in their thinking. They really thought God was a good father. They understood they were in covenant and he understood that his wrath was always about protecting them from the other gods or the other nations. So they weren't thinking God's angry when, when the writer of Proverbs pinned this down. So if you look at that word correct, it means bana, to build, to, to establish or to cause to continue. And of course the son, ban, it can be referred to a grandson or a child. Now, as I begin to research, Robert, I love this. I actually cried when I first discovered this. I actually cried. It just touched my heart with the Father's love. But from the commentary I was reading in the Arabic, the word correct there had the connotation of bringing a child into the light. Like, I don't know about, I'm a grandfather now, so I use a lot of grandfather analogies, you know, but when I'm teaching Lewin how to fish, you know, like, you know, you you, hold, you put, put this down, you hold your thumb in there, and just as you get so far, you, let, you know, and he's trying, and he's getting it tangled up in the weeds, and I'm, you know, I'm sitting there, no, 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 no. And he finally gets it. He finally, like, I keep saying, pick it up again, keep trying. Finally, whoosh, he cast out into the water. The bobber hits the pond, and like, ah, now I get it. He calls me poopa. Now I got it, poopa. See, it's that aha moment. So, see, the discipline of the Lord Right, the discipline of the Lord is to bring sons and daughters into this place like, oh, oh, now I get it. You see, and see, that's what the wrath of God is about. Really, I mean, the wrath of God is for for people that aren't sons and daughters. The the wrath of God is more for orphans or for unbelievers. And what happens is if you're an unbeliever or if you're an orphan, then you keep fighting and struggling and rather than just saying, like you said, Robert, like, I just don't know, but you know, you know. It's like you come into that place of peace and rest, and all of a sudden, as, as the Lord's discipline, and I don't like the discipline. I mean, I'm, t- I'm hard-headed. I mean, there's been, actually, it's been, you know, a year or so that the Lord's been dealing with me on things till finally there is a day that I finally get, and I go, oh, aha, now I know why that happened. Now, I, now okay. and then all of a sudden, it's like, oh, hallelujah, isn't God good? Praise God, he's such a good papa. But, you know, going through that process, it's like, where are you at, Lord? Don't you hear my prayers? I've been trying the best I can. I've been doing everything I know how to do, you know? So this, this idea of the wrath or the discipline of the Lord from the Father Heart perspective, you have to understand it. It's always love. It's always redemptive. It's always restorative. And when we embrace that personally, then our walk with God is gonna be a lot more passionate, a lot more joyful, you know, and a lot more peaceful. But again, at the same point, I have to be careful as I'm representing the Father that I don't give people the idea that Papa God just is Santa Claus and whatever you do is fine and he's, he's still gonna love you. That Part of that's true. No matter what I do, he's gonna love me. But I'm saying that part of his love that seems hard sometimes, I have to also embrace that as much as I do as his tender kisses and love. Does that make sense? I mean, I'm, on, I, you know, I'm just trying to keep a balance here. So the good news is that the blood has extinguished the wrath of God for covenant people, and I might take a minute to explain that, but just to give you some context, so this is in Matthew 26, 39. Uh, Jesus in Gethsemane, this is you know the night that he's betrayed, and it says, he went beyond them, the disciples, and fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. And in one part, I actually said that he sweat blood. I mean, he was under such stress of what he was about ready to, to come into. And it's, imp- it's really uh, important to understand that this cup, from, from their perspective, fr- was a method of execution for many people because the cup was a metaphor how uh, many of the Hebrew prophets came to use as a metaphor for the wrath of God because they would actually put poison in a person's cup. And uh, so what Jesus was saying, do I, do I really have to take the poison of all their sins, Papa? Yes, you do. And so part of that was the consequences of our sin, your sin, my sin, which, you know, the, you know what the wages of sin is? Death. What's the promise in John three sixteen? Eternal life. See what I'm saying? So the whole point of Jesus taking the cup was so that we could have that abundant life. So here's my heart, uh, Colossians 1.20, and through him, 
Jesus is to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Let me take two or three minutes to maybe confuse you, but I think, and maybe I might have to come back and talk about this. Help me, Holy Spirit, because I want to be clear. Some people would say that at the cross, the wrath of God is no longer a reality. That's true for covenant people because we have chose by our own will to make a decision to say, I received the gift. I received that you took the cup, you drank the cup of what would cause me death, which is the wages of sin, You've, and I've chosen to receive your free will gift. So, so the consequences of sin or the, the, the wrath of God is no longer part of my life as a covenant person. That doesn't mean that there still isn't the wrath of God. Like, for instance, uh, a lot of people say, well, because when I begin to teach this, I actually told people there is no longer wrath. And I would get myself in trouble because then people would say, well, what about Ananias and Sapphira? Or what about Herod when he was preaching and said he was taking the worship as a god? You know, he was struck down and a bunch of worms exploded out of his stomach and Ananias and Sapphira died. So how do you answer that if there was no longer wrath? Well, See, I had to go back to the Old Testament and, and put all this together. Why did, if, if you read, if you even read when, when we talk about communion, when you even read the night that Jesus was betrayed, it said Satan entered into Judas. Ananias and Sapphira, Satan entered into them, right? In other words, what did they do? They aligned themselves, not with the Father, they aligned themselves with the enemy. And when they aligned themselves with the enemy, guess what happened? The consequences of that decision caused the wrath of God to fall upon them. So was that the heart of the Father? No, that was the consequence of a bad decision. Ananias and Sapphira made a wrong decision. Herod made a decision to receive worship as a God. So does that clarify it? And also, from a covenantal perspective, this is really important. I would like to come back one day and, and preach on this. This is really good. But, you know, we're all Pentecostals, Charismatics, you know, ex-Baptists maybe, I don't know. But if, if I said, by a stripe we are healed, what would that mean to you? You can answer. We're, we're healed, right. Healed from, but in context, what was that healing? So, uh, this is a big subject, but let me, let me just confuse you for a couple minutes. It was a covenantal healing first. Isaiah pinned that down around 700 years before Jesus actually went to the cross and see, they had made a decision covenantally not to take all of the promises that the Father wanted to give them because they were afraid to have a personal face-to-face -face contact. And they said, no, we're really afraid of you. Go talk to Moses. And they ended up in a contract or a covenant that had punishment with it. And so they made an agreement as they crossed over into the Jordan that they said, look, if, if we don't serve you as our God, we give you the right to punish us. But, you know, if you'll protect us, we'll enter into a contract. And so what happened is that they entered into a contract or a covenant that involved punishment. And so Jesus comes as Israel and actually takes the punishment for a wrong covenantal agreement that they had made. And so when the writer of Isaiah is saying, by his stripe, you are healed, first of all, it was in context of covenant people. So he went to the whipping post and took the stripe, right? It was at the whipping post. What Jesus, so, so see, and this sounds contradictive. The father doesn't punish people. He's not a punisher, he's a restorer, right? But Jesus was punished from a perspective, from a covenantal agreement that, he, that they had made, not the father. The father never wanted punishment, but they had made the agreement. So Jesus actually fulfilled the old covenant by taking the punishment for Israel as a covenant people, not, not that we need to be punished. Does that make sense? Yeah. Like that really set me free because I never agreed to that. See, I'm, I'm a one new man. I jumped in on promises like hallelujah. Yeah. You know, that's what I want. So does that make sense? Yeah. You guys okay? So, but that's, that's really important that how that happens. So let me say this. God's, and again, can I make the devil the bad guy without giving him a whole lot of glory? But the devil's the problem, right? God's wrath has always been against the devil from the beginning. Look at Genesis 3.15. It 
says, I will put an enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. And he shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the hill. Enmity, what does that mean? Hatred, hostility, right? So how did, how did Jesus deal with, this, with Satan on the cross? Because right here's the, the original promise to, to the devil from God. And between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise you on your head. Who's, who's the he there? Jesus, right? And you shall bruise him on his hill, meaning you can't really fully walk. So Jesus was nailed to the cross, right? And Bob and I were talking about this in the early church and how they, they looked at what, what Jesus did. The, the early church said so that was a mousetrap, like Jesus was a, the bait to lure the devil in to defeat him. But that's kind of what happened because Jesus was lifted up. And what happened was that when Jesus said it is finished, he sent the Holy Spirit that we can no longer, we don't have to be deceived any longer. <laughs> he crushed his head. In other words, we now know the truth because we're in covenant. So that's what it means when John 16, 8 says, and he, the Holy Spirit, when he comes, will convict the world of sin, right? And you know what that, you know what sin was in that context? You might know? Separation. You know what? Because because everybody's like, you know, you're a sinner. Well, you're only a sinner if you reject Jesus because the Holy Spirit, Jesus said, Jesus sent the Holy Spirit into the world to convict him of sin because they don't believe in me. <laughs> See, Jesus is the only one who can rescue us from the wages of sin. <laughs> right? I mean, this is kind of easy, isn't it? I mean, we don't need to write a big book on theology. What is sin? Well, first of all, when I'm preaching this, I mean, in one way, I wish you're all a bunch of unbelievers so I could lead you to the Lord because I would say you're all sinners until you re re reject Jesus. But if you accept him, guess what? You've got eternal life. That's good gospel preaching, isn't it? And he's not mad at you. So concerning sin of righteousness, and that means because he, he was resurrected, and concerning judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged. Hallelujah, we win salvation, the devil loses. So that word uh, judgment right there actually is a word, I think it's krisis in the Greek, but it actually means been brought in to the jury to receive the decision of the judge, which you're guilty, you're condemned, go to jail or go to the pit. So uh, what I'm saying is the wrath of God is against the consequences of sin in our lives and the wrath of God is against the enemy that causes us because the enemy has come to rob, kill, and destroy us. But John said Jesus has come to destroy the works of the enemy. Two different words there. Yes, ma'am. This is good, though. This is another little good juicy point. There's two words in the Greek for destroy. Apollomai and luo, right? In John 10.10, 10, it says Jesus has come, I mean, Jesus come to destroy the work of the enemy. Hold on. No, I'm sorry. That's 1 John 3, 8. Sorry. John 10, 10 is the enemy has come to rob, kill, and destroy. Right? The word destroy there means apollomine, which means if you could just take like a, a rock and you're like, you know, super strong, you would crush the rock into dust and completely go, it's completely destroyed. So the enemy's come to do that to your life, to rob, kill, and destroy you. John, who I think knew Jesus more intimately than any other disciple. That's why I'm more Jonathanian in my doctrine and theology. I just love John. John said Jesus has come to destroy the works of the enemy. Different word, luo. What the word luo means in the Greek? You probably don't, or I wouldn't be here for telling you. <laughs> you know what it means? To untie or to unravel. See, Jesus has come to destroy the works of the enemy, which is to untie what the devil has done so that when you are the perpetrator and the one that's been offended, Jesus, or here's the Father's love, he wants to fix both of you. That's what Zozo is about, right, Laurie? Right? It's not about saying, well, let's get that per person punished. No, it's, it's about both people involved get healed. That's why Jesus came. See, that's the love of the Father. That's the destruction that we're looking for in our own lives. Jesus, come untie what the enemy's done in my life because I want to be free. He who the sun sets free is free indeed. Hallelujah. Yeah. Now I'm starting to preach. I went from teaching to preaching. But Miss Betsy's giving me the eye. So let's go on here. So here's the bottom line. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life. See that 
part about making good choices and consequences, but the wrath of God abides upon him. Now, there's two ways to look at this. One is, again, in context, when we look at a lot of these scary wrath passages in the New Testament, is that he's talking about 70 AD, and I'm sure that you guys understand that because you've had Harold Eberle, and I know Pastor Roberts probably taught much about that. But a lot of people, they don't realize that. You know, that the part of the wrath of God when we look in the New Testament was the wrath upon Israel because they chose to reject the Messiah. I mean, that's why when the, Jesus said, hey, when you go in and they take you to court, don't worry about what you're going to say. They're going to stone you. They're going to beat you. Don't worry. That, that whole struggle, that whole 40 years was the, the battle between is Jesus who he says is or he isn't. And much of the wrath that, that's talked about was on covenant people. See, the wrath of God is more about covenant people than it is people outside of covenant. I mean, the world already knows that, I think. That they do something stupid, they're going to pay for it. So what I'm trying to do is to give a, a correct understanding of wrath for us that are in covenant so that we can embrace the love of the Father and actually say, Lord, discipline me more. Like, bring me into that aha moment so that I can be the son that you've called me to be, that I can be free. And here it is, Romans 8.1. Here's a couple bottom lines. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, another covenantal perspective. And that word uh, in the Greek is katakrima. It says there's no longer falling from above a verdict of damnation. <laughs> it is so good. I was in, I was in uh, the Philippines with Leif Hetland, and I was preaching on this particular passage. And there was a guy that was in a makumba, or a sort of makumba. I don't, I don't know what they call it in the Philippines. But a witch doctor had put this brazened anklet on his uh, ankle, and they, they tried to cut it off with... So, you know, Saul's, and they, and they could not get it off. And it was because something he had did that was really, I don't know if you murdered him, but anyway, it was, it was a sign from the witch doctor that you're labeled, right? And I'm preaching this message. And when I, when I said there's no longer, I said if you're in Christ, because he accepted Jesus later in his life. And when I, when I said that, it fell off his ankle. <laughs> you, we had revival that service. I'm telling you what, it, was, it got messy after that. I mean, it was like, because in other words, everyone knew it. I'm like, is that a trick? Like, you know, I didn't do that, did I? And everybody knew it. Like, oh my gosh, we just saw a miracle. But that should be freeing. See, there's no longer a verdict of, there's nothing falling in covenant from the Father. There's no punishment, right? There's discipline, but it's not punishment. It's to bring you to a place that you can be the fully of the son and daughter he's called you to be. It's such good news. I love this. Man, this is good. Dang. So the truth is, you have died and your life and now is hidden with Christ. That's the place of no wrath from, a, from the sense of the consequences of sin. And we were dead, and you were dead in your trespasses. This is my last passage. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you were formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. You see that? Can you see that all the way through the scriptures I've been sharing with you? It's always the enemy there trying to interfere with covenant people. According to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging in the desire of the flesh and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Well, do you see the context there? That children of wrath because... What he was saying, some of you guys out there, you've been, in, you've been in covenant. You understand what Isaiah 53, 5 was saying. You understand the covenant promises and you're still rejecting Messiah, right? You're sons of disobedience and, by, and you're nature, by nature, you're children of wrath. So in other words, he was speaking to a covenant group of people saying, repent, <laughs> repent. But God, hallelujah, I always tell people, don't, when, you're, when you're in a conversation and people are talking, don't believe a word they say until you hear the but. Because what they believe is always after the but. Amen. Amen? But God, hallelujah, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with heavenly places in Christ. Amen. That's such good news. You see, they were in the transgression of an old covenant understanding. That's why, that's why Paul says that Jesus has redeemed us from the curse of the law because of the curse of the law, there was punishment. <laughs> but now, 
We can be like David, bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits, who forgives what? All of my inequities and heals all my diseases. Now I can post and say, in Jesus Christ, all the promises are yes. And we say, amen. So, <sighs> amen. I think I'm finished. So, so Holy Spirit, I just, I just pray that in this conglomeration of um, sentences and words and scriptures and ideas that you would bring into alignment what they need to understand for themselves personally, because each one is a precious son, a precious daughter. And Lord, you want them to hear what you're speaking to them because of their uniqueness and of their special place in your kingdom and in your heart. So Holy Spirit, I just thank you that you've revealed, because uh, you're the administrator of the Father's kingdom. <laughs> and thank you, Holy Spirit, that you can reveal to us what truth is and that because Jesus came and suffered on that cross that the consequences of sin have been destroyed and now we have immortality, we have eternal life that we can celebrate. But yet, Lord, we understand that we're still children and we still make wrong decisions and we, we invite you, Holy Spirit, to bring the discipline of the Father in our lives in a way that we can say, aha, now I understand that we, that we, it's the kindness of God. See, it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. It's, a, it's the Father's love. It's always good. He's not angry. He's not mad. He's so, he's so enthralled with you as unique, special children. You're the apple of his eye. And I just pray, Father, that you would just touch each one here today with, with the uniqueness of who they are and the unique love you have for them. That as we look into the heavens, they would understand that your eye always looking at them. <laughs> Thank you, God, for your great love in Jesus' name.